The GovX show is supported by Forrester, helping government organisations perform at their best. Visit forrester.com to learn more. Welcome to the GovX show, where today's episode was recorded at silly o'clock. So for those following along on YouTube, you'll have to forgive the, the thousand yard stare. But I think it was all very worthwhile as this early bird managed to catch up with Sam Higgins, who is uh, an urban beekeeper, as well as the principal analyst with Forrester, based down under in Sydney, Australia. So as you'll already have heard from the, the disembodied voice, that introduces every episode. Forrester have partnered with GovX show to underwrite these conversations with our speakers and they share our mission to provide government executives with the knowledge and perspective to get future fit. So let's crack on and hear what Sam has to say. Okay, so hi Sam, great to have you joining us for the GovX show. Uh, just managing to slip you in and introduce our audience before we get to the GovX digital conference in a few days time. That's right. Really, uh, really looking forward to it, James. And uh, thank you for having me today. So these conversations we, we like to have uh, on the GovX show are really about getting to, to know our speakers a, a bit better and get a feel for their interests before we dive into what you do professionally. I, I guess it'd be great if you just tell us a little bit more about what you like to do outside of work. Well, it's funny you should ask that. So I come from a, a long line of uh, wannabe farmers, uh, hobby farmers, if you like here in Australia. My father grew up uh, in the western part of the state of New South Wales uh, on the Murrumbidgee River uh, before his uh, parents dragged him to Sydney. And, um, and all as I was growing up, you know, there was this constant pull back to, uh, back to rural areas. So uh, at, one, at one point he was running a mango farm in the Northern Territory just outside of Darwin. Um, and when I was growing up uh, up there, one of the things I came across was um, what we call here in Australia sugar bag bees. Now, these are a honey-producing um, social bee mm -hmm. that uh, is about the size of a, of a fly um, and quite popular with the Indigenous Australians. So they would, would use yeah. the honey and wax. And for, for those watching the show, if they've ever seen a didgeridoo, a long wooden instrument that, uh, that our First Nations people play here, they, they use the wax on the mouthpiece. Um, so I actually keep these stingless bees because I saw them growing up, uh, learned that they produced honey. And, uh, and about 15 years ago, um, uh, we started to keep them domestically in Australia. So it was quite early days in the industry then, but, uh, but I picked it up and uh, I've got hives with friends and family. I often look for people to sort of um, be host families for these tiny little hives. They're, they're much smaller than, than the European bees and being stingless, you don't need all of the gear. So yeah. safe for kids, yeah. you know, you see them in primary schools, daycare centers. Um, so that's my little, on my small 500 square meter block here in inner city, Sydney, uh, you know, I have one of these hives Brilliant. part of that sort of hobby farming concept. It's, uh, it's one of the perks of this job is I get to speak to sort of people either in the public sector or working very closely with the public sector like yourself from around the world and you really get to dip into sort of uh, they're often very very different sort of life experiences and certainly uh sort of urban beekeeping uh is is, uh, is, a, is a first for the govx show so that is fantastic <laughs> uh, so you've kind of given the game away in terms of 
sort of which, which parts of the world you're based in. So obviously, mm, from a indeed. British point of view, it's extremely exotic. Uh, tell us, give us a, a sense of what would you recommend uh, if a visitor from the GovEx delegate audience was to come over and, and visit your neck of the woods? What do you recommend they see or do? Yeah, well, one, one of the things I would caution uh, any first-time visitors uh, to the Big Island down here would be that it's it's very large. Um, I remember early in my career, uh, I was working for another uh, another firm and a colleague from the, the US came out and arrived in Sydney uh, and wondered if he could get on a plane for a meeting in Singapore on the same day and then turn around and come back. And I had to explain to him that he, was, he wasn't actually even going to leave the continent in the eight hours that it would take him to get to uh, to, to Singapore and back, so that was um, that was quite interesting. But we're we're pretty blessed um, blessed in Australia in terms of natural beauty. Um, but having been someone that's lived, you know, uh, on the east coast, which is our most popular populous region for those who don't know the geography well, uh, both in Sydney, Brisbane, um, and I had the the pleasure of travelling around but spent my formative and teenage years in, in Darwin and in the Northern Territory. I'd say if you want to see something very different, um, then maybe maybe go, you know, London, Singapore, Singapore, Darwin, and then go Darwin, Sydney. That might be the, the way to go. Darwin's a very unique, unique place, um, very multicultural, um, almost, almost Asian in its appeal. You know, it, it has night markets that, yeah. that would that sort of, you know, uh, populated and have grown up from immigrants from Thailand and Cambodia and Malaysia. And so it has this real sort of strange, you know, tropical Asian feel that's very different to the rest of Australia. Um, but of course, nothing beats having a, a cold beer on the steps of the Opera House as you look at the Harbour Bridge. So certainly can commend that one uh, to your to your listeners and viewers. Yeah, big big fan of uh, of Sydney, uh, and obviously you know hanging out the rocks like most most British tourists. But so there's I mean, there's so much to do. As you say, Australia is such a huge continent sized country with such a geographic breadth. Uh, there's a lot, obviously a lot of culture there and sort of cultural sort of richness from all the various immigrant communities and the indigenous communities. So it's a fascinating place. It's just a, unfortunate. It's about I don't know sort of. A, it's a long old stretch away but uh, thank thank goodness for the the, the miracles of uh, video conference so exactly uh, so you're you're the principal analyst i think with with forrester uh and obviously right. forrester is a company which provides uh, research and consulting services to to government and other industries could you perhaps i guess sort of tell us within that sort of broad description what your your, your focus is with with forrester yeah so um, it's it's actually my second uh, time at Forrester. I was actually uh, with Forrester back in in 05, 06, uh, when Forrester decided to enter the Asia Pacific market for the first time, uh, having not really had a presence here for about ten years. Um, for personal reasons, I, I, I was only at Forrester the first time for 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 a short period, but enjoyed it a lot and always felt like it, it was a bit of the my spiritual intellectual home. And so I had a had a suspicion I'd be back. Mm. Um, but my role within Forrester, as you said, James, we are fundamentally a, a research organisation, an advisory organisation. Um, and at the moment, you know, our focus has very much been around what has been happening in regards to the transformation around the customer experience uh, and digitally enabling that customer experience. And so my particular interest 
is in helping chief information officers, chief digital officers, um, chief data officers, any of those sort of C-suite executives and technology leaders mm. in understanding, you know, how can they use those more modern contemporary technologies, everything from cloud computing to artificial intelligence um, to really enable what it is that the business side of the house wants to do, whether that's a public or private sector business. Um, so that's really, I suppose, the, the, the team that I, that I sit within. Um, and then I could sort of talk a little bit about my specific interests. And clearly one of those is public sector. And so uh, I'm one of a handful of our, uh, our analysts across the globe who specialise in the sort of um, the application of technology in, in a public sector mm. context. And when I say application of technology, it's important to understand that, um, you know, I'm as passionate about what that means for the people using the technology, so the consumers of technology, as well as the the role, uh, you know, skills and concerns that you have as a practitioner, as a, as a technologist yourself and, and the things that you're doing with people, because that is something I think that sometimes gets ignored that yeah. in technology is in this separate beast that has a mind of its own, you know, well, not yet anyway. Um, depending on how far we go with AI, maybe that will be the case. But but certainly, you know, there are there are technologists who bring this to bear and have been doing that for many years. And so that, that's certainly a passion of mine as well, is the people behind the technology. Yeah. I mean, certainly over the last 20 years, as a sort of journalist covering uh, sort of digital government and sort of e-government and the various sort of guises over that time, uh, I, I find the, the waves of technology disruption fascinating sort of intellectually, but obviously... What really yeah. draws me into sort of covering the, the public sector over those years is just sort of what civil servants and sort of public servants are able to do with these tools uh, and how the the ambition and scope uh, has, has evolved over over those years. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, from your point of view, you've explained sort of what you do at Forrester. What was your path there? I mean, that's what, you obviously work very closely with the public sector now. Have you had any sort of stints working alongside the public sector up until now? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I've sort of got a long relationship with the public sector. And I should start by saying, in addition to being a closet farmer, as my father was, um, I, I'm also second generation IT. My father was also an IT guy. Uh, in fact, I, I often say to people, and they say, oh, so tell us a little bit about your career. Well, you know, my father was a COBOL programmer, and I was a COBOL programmer. So very early in my career, um, which, which commenced actually when I was quite young, I did some data entry work, um, you know, in the sort of late eighties. Um, but, but at the sort of end of my father's career, um, as I started mine, that was literally what I did. My first job in the Northern Territory public service was indeed as a, as a COBOL programmer, uh, working in, um, a government department known, um, unsurprisingly as Northern computing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Full of, full of ideas in, in the public sector at the time. We were for naming departments. What is this department? It does computing and it's located north. It's northern computing. Um, so, yeah, so started as a, as a software developer uh, there. I then had the opportunity to move to, to Brisbane, um, a much more populous city further south on the east coast, where I uh, had a couple of years in retail banking. So actually working for a joint venture um, between what is now ABB, for those that know, the big British automation uh, organisation, and then um, a number of banks, including the Royal Bank of Scotland, all of whom were interested in a sort of next generation banking platform. So did that for a couple of years um, before returning to the public sector and spending uh, almost the next decade 
working for the Department of Transport and Main Roads uh, for the state of Queensland, um, which was pretty exciting. And so up through the ranks into um, architecture, solution architecture, architecture and strategy, uh, and ultimately doing a lot of advice at the CIO level um, before, as I mentioned, uh, becoming an analyst for a short time. And then after that, really shifting gears and, and doing a lot more advisory work. So uh, central government advisory, both at state and federal, and spending a lot of time doing, um, I suppose, comparative research across jurisdictions, which is how I first got exposed to the UK civil service and UK local government structures, which translate really well, obviously, as being a Westminster-based system with multiple tiers of government. You know, the sorts of solutions that, for example, state governments in a, in a federation like Australia or in North America and Canada, you know, things like housing and, um, and social services translate really well. So there's a lot of portability of, I suppose, the best solutions that people, uh, that people have across the globe for, um, you know, uh, countries that have very similar parliamentary uh, democracies as Australia, Singapore, the UK, Canada. Uh, North America, etc. Anyway, uh, obviously, I mean, the specifics of implementation are always perceived to be hyper-local, but the, 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 mm. the big issues driving sort of these changes are obviously in common across jurisdictions. And as you say, there's a particular sort of level of uh, sort of alignment, I suppose, between sort of Westminster-based systems. And certainly uh, the conversations we've been having with public sector executives in Canada, the US, um, and uh, other Commonwealth countries have really sort of echoed with what we've been hearing mm. here in the UK. So I think that that's part of what GovX Digital is all about, obviously, is about bringing these voices together and sort of talk together on, on the public stage in front of our audience. So, so certainly really excited to have you with your comparative perspective, bringing some of that for our, our opening keynote session of the conference, which is gonna be you know very exciting on the 17th. Um, yeah. So you, men you mentioned that uh, you obviously sort of specialise in providing sort of uh, sort of high level advisory to CIOs and uh, and other sort of senior sort of technology roles within the public sector. How has the I suppose the role of the CIO sort of changed over over the years? Because my, my sense is obviously as you've seen the, the development of the CTO role and the chief mm. officer role and obviously now the chief data officer role, uh, the the, the role of the CIO has has obviously evolved in, in tandem. Yep, yep. No, I, I think it's as you were saying before that that sort of being fascinated about the waves of technology and history, and um, when you spend a lot of time in a sector, um, I think if that's a passion, you know, uh, and there are lots of lessons to be learned there. And one of the things that that I've observed about the role is, I think we often expect the role to disappear. You know, every couple of years, um, you'll see some article about the death of the CIO or, you know, some new role being minted like the chief digital officer. And, you know, was the chief digital officer going to take over the CIO or vice versa? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that sort of career contests, um, cage fights between C-suite executives. You know, I've got visions of sort of people rolling up their sleeves and tying their ties on their heads and things, but the, um, the reality is that what I think the I think the fundamental shift is that these new roles emerge to do one of two things. They either emerge from the CIO role to deal with something that has become commoditized, 
but still requires specialist oversight and, and some strong governance and a different set of skills. And so if I think about, you know, the first time I saw a CIO CTO split, it was, it was around the time when um, government agencies were looking at things like outsourcing and shared services and saying, well, okay, so hang on. So my engineers are all going to move either out to a provider or across to another agency. And so now what I need is I need a senior buyer or a senior stakeholder to represent my interests that way. And that's very different to what the role of the CIO was, which was facing off against um, the business in terms of trying to respond to their requirements and set strategy and educate and, and facilitate the use of technology internally. And so, you know, and again, when, when we saw cloud computing, you saw, you saw another sort of wave of those CTO roles break out as people adopted cloud and you needed someone quite senior. So I have this sort of theory, I suppose, James, that, that the emergence of these roles is really the fact that CIOs typically are moving further and further up, up the business stack. Um, from a Forrester perspective, the more we investigate the role and the more we look at how technology is changing and has changed particularly over the last 10 years, the more convinced we are and the more that we're writing and advising to our clients about, look, the title is probably starting to get even less and less important probably what is important is that um, organisations, both public and private, uh, need to recognise that the secret, as far as our research goes, what, what our research tells us is the most successful organisations, uh, whether you measure that on their customer intimacy or whether you measure that on um, their ability to be efficient and effective at a policy level or if it's private sector growth and profit, um, it all seems to come down to the organisation having a culture where there is recognition of a single most senior technology executive, uh, you know, even if that there might be three CIOs in an organisation. So just just recognising that ultimately you need to have some centralised accountability um, and things like bimodal IT and two-speed IT, which, which some other firms sometimes talk about, um, you know, we've been saying for at least four years that I'm aware of um, that, that 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 is actually a, a path to mediocrity and in fact not a path to success. So... Anyway, that was a long answer to yeah, yeah, what do good. I think is happening with with the roles, but but yeah, I think uh, I think it is an evolutionary role, and most CIOs seem to be more and more business savvy. And we see more business people, non technologists, being appointed yeah, to yeah. CIO roles. I think supported by CTOs and chief digital officers and chief data officers, who who then might have those deeper technology skills and indeed need them at that deeper level. You know, facing off against. Microsoft or AWS on a cloud front from a technical perspective when they have hundreds of services they offer you is no mean feat. So I think putting a, giving someone a chief title for having to deal with that, uh, that mess is, is certainly, uh, I mean, certainly. I think, I think, I think as, as we've seen uh, technology move from the basement and sort of being about sort of, you know, keeping the lights on and keeping the email sort of up to sort of yeah. a sort of more transformational, uh, service levels for the organization and enabling sort of new generations of, of service delivery um, then I think that you know it, it's really elevated the the traditional IT function to someone who actually has to talk to the the, the product owners and the service owners within the the, the public sector organization uh, to, to yep. sort of really ensure that there's proper robust alignment I mean certainly in 2020 I mean so here in the UK uh, 
the ability to scale out services to people who were suddenly sort of claiming unemployment benefits um, and to do that entirely remotely was, was only possible because of the very robust digital infrastructure that had been put in place. Uh, and I think that, you know, that, that's really shown in, in sharp relief, the, that sort of strategic importance, that's sort of the importance of having that strategic vision of, uh, of the CIO function. Yep, I, I totally agree. So, I mean, uh, obviously, I was interested that you mentioned about the sort of, because you speak to sort of many different sort of government organisations, you've got that sort of comparative perspective, which uh, mm. those of us sitting here in the UK, you know, perhaps uh, sort of don't have. So from your, your perch on the other side of the world, um, how does, what sort of shape does the, the UK civil service seem to be in when it comes to having conversations with, with them relative to the sort of conversations you might have in Australia or with other friendly jurisdictions in Asia-Pacific? I think one of the things I've learned over many years is that the, the bell curve um, of capability and, um, and adoption of technology and whatever the particular topic might be is actually a lot narrower than people think. So they often feel like they are, they are an outlier, um, you know, and maybe not doing um, as well as they might think you know, in the trenches, so to speak. So certainly when I look around and I think about some of the, the sort of key challenges, there is not much in it in terms of lead or lag between, say, the UK, um, uh, somewhere like Australia uh, and North America. And, and in North America, I'm including Canada and the US um, in that. I probably, I probably think in terms of synergies and alignment in thinking there's a little bit, there's a little bit stronger linkage with, with Canada. So, and, and it tends to be one of those things where on certain fronts, you know, if, if we were to use those three as yardsticks, you know, uh, the UK will be ahead on, on one particular area, um, you know, and then, and then there's a bit of borrowing from, from one to the other and, and people catch up. Um, and so one of the interesting things that, that I'll touch on uh, next week is the, um, this concept of capability and the, the notion of professionalising the civil service and the public sector, upskilling people in digital and data and, uh, and robotics and what we call intelligent automation. So that includes robotics and AI and ML, giving people those skills, which is a conversation that, you know, ha has been ongoing in the UK on the back of much of the great work that um, Lord Francis and others have done through the digital transformation um, for the last couple of years. But, but, you know, some of that's only now occurring in the Australian uh, civil service and public sector. Um, our, our former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, commissioned a review by, um, by David Thody, who's well known in Australian circles as the former CEO of, of Telstra, our large telecommunications provider here. Um, and it was the biggest review of the civil service in 40 years. And the, and the topic and the amount of... Um, dedicated in that report to capability uplift um, was something that, you know, I think shocked people here, but, but to me felt like a conversation that had been happening in the UK for quite some time. So, you know, that's a, that's a classic example of, of where you see some of those differences. Another example, uh, maybe a less um, contemporary one was, was sort of the one-stop shop journey of different, um, of different governments, you know? So again, you 
face-to-face -face service delivery through a one-stop shop was something the Canadians got right through Service Canada very early, many years ago. Um, you know, Australia then sort of adopted much of that, uh, much of that uh, mentality at the state level. Our federal government is only just now, a decade later, getting its head around those same sorts of concepts. Um, you know, having said that, there were other features in the UK in terms of um, things like access to social services through a single phone number that were, again, far ahead of Australia and Canada, um, you know, and much, uh, and much of the other jurisdictions. So there's some of the sort of key observations I'd make is that there are these moving parts. But right now, I think, I think the UK has done a lot of thinking about what does capability look like for the future. And indeed, um, uh, I, know, I know that in the UK, the term future fit would resonate with, with many civil servants and public servants. And for Forrester, we actually have a whole stack of research and, and, and we've settled on that same concept. You know, what does it take to be future fit? Um, you know, not just in the public sector, but in the private sector as well. You know, what does it mean, James, for you and I to, to share this call on this conversation with some sort of robotic, you know, uh, colleague sometime in the future, whether that colleague's job was just to, to prompt us with interesting questions mm. or whether they get to the stage where, where they're participating in a more intelligent fashion, who knows? But that's um, but that's something. This concept of future fit uh, has come through pretty loud and clear, and is is really a much clearer message, I think, in the UK public sector than it than it is in Australia at the moment. Yeah, well, we've got uh, so we talk about capability uplift. Uh, we've got uh, Rupert McNeil, the the chief people officer of the, the UK government uh, and civil service. He's uh, he's sort of directly addressing that point in a session where we're looking at sort of the role of success profiles. Uh, sort of defining what it is that is required to be successful in a particular role and then sort of ensuring that we both sort of recruit but also maintain the skills required to, to sort of be successful in that role in the short and, and sort of long term. Um, so I mean, there's a lot of work being done there and uh, certainly I think uh, that's going to be one of the, the important themes of, uh, of the conference next week. But uh, so obviously... You're, you're in a session, you're in our keynote session uh, that's sort of taking a, sort of a closer look at sort of what transformation means for the public sector to now. And I'm sort of keen to get your, your take on sort of how, how sort of understanding has evolved over the last decade, perhaps, because it's certainly a term that's, that's not new, but obviously, you know, by its very nature, so sort of what it symbolizes and what it means to people is, is, a, is a moving feast. So what's, what's your, your perspective on, on how conversations around transformation in the public sector have evolved yeah I, I think you know if I think back to to early in my career um we we and someone had said the word transformation in the late 90s um you, you would have basically uh translated that to oh we've got a machinery of government change and they've just given it a fancy name um so there's a bit of a restructure so I think you know our our concept of what transformation means has has matured um, and I think we now attach, I mean, fundamentally, if I go back to a definition from a Forrester perspective, we, we think about transformation as something that is continuous. Uh, it's, it is this notion of, of change over time. Um, it isn't, it doesn't have a start or an end. It's not a project. Um, you know, it's, it's much more the concept that we're dealing, as you mentioned before, for example, the concept of having service and product owners, right? These things that exist over an indefinite time frame, and they need to evolve and change in response to social and political needs. Um, and so transformation then is kind of the label we give 
the tools and techniques and processes that affect that change over time. Um, of course, you know, humans like starts and ends of things, you know, we like start and end of a day, we like years, you know, we like to put all sorts of uh, mental uh, concepts on the world. And so I think that, that we've then tended to, to sort of come up with periods of transformation. You know, what sort of transformation are we in now, James? And so part of my um, part of my presentation will will be reflecting on that. You know what what is the what is the current state of transformation? What sort of era or 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 period of transformation are we in now? And really, what I mean by that is, I suppose, what is the motivator for our current change activities? You know, um, and we've seen that if again, if we go back, as I said, a motivator for transformation in the '90s was really just restructuring things to be as efficient as we could make them. Um, and I'll touch on things like, well, you know, business transformation, right, which was the sort of precursor to digital transformation. And so then the question has to be asked, well, what, what is this next wave of transformation? You know, if government transformation is all change all the time, then, then what label should we be giving um, the current uh, point in time in which we find ourselves given, as you said, you know, the conversation is centering around things like capabilities and skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, as we all are too well aware, 2020 has been a, a year of big changes and transformations, both uh, professionally and, and personally for, for many of us. Uh, but my, my sense is really, it's actually a springboard for much sort of more profound uh, transformation as we as we look ahead into 2021 and beyond. Because I think that what we've all experienced in 2020 is really sort of going to reset expectations, both from, I suppose, empowered citizens, uh, but also for amongst civil servants themselves about what is possible and how quick it is uh, to, to move when you have permission to take a bit of risk. So I mean, what, what's your, your sense as we look ahead beyond 2020, which is the year obviously we're looking forward to turning our back on, but as you look ahead, uh, what, what's your sense of, of the, the long-term consequences of 2020 for transformation and change and, and the public sector in general? Yeah, no, Great, great question. Uh, it reminds me that there's a, uh, I don't know if anyone else has had this marketing message appear in their, uh, in their social media feeds, but I keep seeing this shirt that I'm sure at some point I'll buy. Uh, and it says 2020 one star would not recommend. Um, and so I think that, that, that sums up the sort of uh, the, the social discourse that often surrounds the current, the current year. But we have been thinking at Forrester um, and, and I was one of the analysts that contribute contributed to a report we did on um, what we called the new unstable normal, because obviously, you know, while we talk about, you know, the next normal or the new normal, we aren't yet out of the pandemic management phase. You know, um, it was terrific in the last uh, couple of days to hear that, you know, Pfizer have had some good results on theirs. The Oxford trials are obviously continuing to go well. Um, so that's all great news, but, but we are still in a pandemic management phase. You know, this is not a typical business continuity event. You know, we something didn't a crisis didn't happen. It was over in six weeks, and so we're all back to normal in the three months. That indeed, some of our survey data suggested executives thought back in March that, you know, by the middle of the year it would all be good. We still don't have an end date, so we have we have sort of pegged our current thinking around this continued period of instability, as you know, as is happening in the UK at the moment, second waves, as is happening in, in other countries. You know, which is a function of the seasons as well. You know, we've seen things get worse. Uh, they were worse for us during winter. You know, we're coming into our summer, of course, in the Southern Hemisphere. So, so those, those sorts of things are different. But a couple of things we found that 
that are important. We think from a public sector perspective, um, there's, there is, as you said, a new recognition that the public sector can be prepared and can respond when, it's, when it needs to. Um, certainly in Australia, we, we see this quite often because of the number of natural disasters that we have here. Certainly in the UK, you see that as well when there's you know, flooding in the north, et cetera. Um, where you know, in response to those crises, you can put together programs, you can enact technology solutions you know, quite quickly. Um, you know, if you think about some of the contact tracing solutions that have been deployed, I've, I've heard anything from uh, government agencies being able to stand those solutions up in six to seven days to, you know, as long as a month, right? Now, you know, those sorts of timeframes for standing up that sort of infrastructure um, and those sorts of solutions is typically unheard of. But, but as you said, in a crisis, that, that really does happen and, um, and the public sector can innovate and can do things very, very, very quickly. So that's one, one element I think is that we will see some of that um, innovation capability stick and the recognition that some of those technology opportunities, particularly if we're using cloud-based solutions are less risky than if I was going to put, you know, millions of pounds into hard infrastructure, which is what we would have done 10 years ago to affect the same solution. So the, the, the operational expenditure element of these means that they can be switched on and switched off in response. And so there is a little bit less, you know, uh, executive risk and also political risk to, to making those investments because we can have more uh, granular control of turning them on and off. The other thing, of course, is that I think the public sector will have to grapple with the social change that is going to come about from some of this. You know, as you remarked before, James, we're working remotely, we're working from home. I think, you know, the, the hyper-urbanisation that we've seen in some parts of the world will change. Um, the opportunity for migration will change. You know, I, I, I know um, that, you know, as part of the post-Brexit negotiations, the UK government and Australian government, as just one example, we're in deep discussions about reframing, um, you know, visa and migration opportunities. Now, when, on, when you can work anywhere and you've proven to work anywhere, then, you know, where would you like to work? And so even in our company, one of my colleagues, um, uh, her partner is, is a miner in, in Western Australia. Western Australia had a hard border. Um, so there was no movement between that, that state uh, and our own. And so she's currently working in, in Western Australia uh, so that she can be closer to, to her partner. Great, it's having no impact on the business whatsoever. So those sorts of decisions that people will make, I think will have a, a really big impact. Um, one of the things uh, I like to end with is just asking our, our guests whether there's a, a book in particular or a podcast or, or something that they've come across that they've found of, of great professional interest, which they think is worth sharing. Do you have a, a book or something that you'd recommend? There's actually, there's actually a podcast that I really love um, called Data Skeptic, which uh, if, if you are interested in upskilling yourself uh, in all things data, and in particular, uh, the, the sort of realm of artificial intelligence, uh, um, machine learning and data management and, and separating fact from fiction, uh, then I'd highly recommend uh, Data Skeptic, uh, which is on all of the, the, the usual podcast networks.
Great. I shall, I shall check that one out. And it's my Spotify account. Fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, it's Sam. The, 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 only, the, the, only other, the only other sad book, the only other sad book I might recommend, uh, which is, believe it or not, on the, uh, on the shelf behind me, is, uh, is a book called The Australian Policy Cycle. Um, which for those in the public sector, they might uh, they might like to have a bit of a read of, but, uh, but for those outside the sector, probably not. Great. I mean, I'm glad you gave us two options there. So I'll, I'll leave it up to our audience to see which which one they they, they gravitate to. But uh, but thanks ever so much for for sharing some of your time at the end of, of your day and at the beginning of mine. But uh, uh, I came fortified with a lot of coffee, and I really enjoyed sort of getting to know you a little bit better. So looking forward to, to having you join us for for next week's conference. Yeah, and uh, looking forward to both the presentations and uh, the panel discussions uh, throughout the conference. It's great. Great stuff. Take care, Sam. As we mentioned in the interview, Sam is one of our keynote presenters at GovX Digital, where alongside Lord Francis Maud and Katrina Winding from the Danish Business Authority, we'll be talking about government transformation. Uh, particularly in light of the events of 2020 and hopefully some of the opportunities for public sector in the coming months. So that session will be taking place at 9.10 a.m. I'd like to think on Tuesday 17th and like all of our sessions is free to attend for public sector executives. So the links you need to register for this session will be in the show notes. I'd love to chit chat but our DJ is already teeing up the closing soundtrack so until the next time be careful out there. Thank you.